Amen. It's interesting how Christians have different ways of praying, hey? It's like pray for yourself and some are like, Lord, please help me. Lord, I receive from you. Then others are like, and then others are like, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Mm, Come and do it, Holy Spirit. Then others are just like silent. Mm. Others will pray for me. We're continuing with this series, Higher Dimensions in Relationships. Are you enjoying it? Yes. If, you, if you've missed out before, um, please just catch up on the website, www.gochurch.co.za, uh, because we're actually on point number seven. All right. Here's the principle. You cannot be spiritually mature without at the same time being relationally and emotionally mature. There are a lot of Christians that are relationally and emotionally immature And so the result is they end up spiritually immature. Come on, you know the people I'm talking about. They look very spiritual at church. They can quote many verses, but they confuse us because they're what we call the brilliant jerk. You know the brilliant jerk. It's that person who's smart, that person who's clever, that person who's competent, but no one wants to work with them. No one wants to connect with them. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. It's that person who's just difficult. They're a Christian, but sometimes you wonder, "Ah, but there's something missing here. And very often, it's because they're emotionally immature. And this kind of stuff is not taught in a lot of churches. Somehow people are thinking things just happen by osmosis, you know? It's just, ah, just come to church and Jesus will just change you. Uh Uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. We have to go through a sanctification process. Amen. What is sanctification? Well, when you are born again, your spirit is regenerated, right? Your spirit is made new. You are made into a new person, right? Spiritually. But your mind has to catch up. Amen? Your body has to catch up with what Jesus has done to your spirit. And that's the hard work very often. Because that's where you have to go into the word of God. Right? That's where you have to go into the word of God. That's where you have to repent of certain things. That's where you have to confess certain things. That's where you have to have your mind renewed. And I'm sick and tired of Christians saying, no, just read the word and everything will be fine. No, when you disciple people, you go deeper than that. You say, how do you read the word? You say, when you read the word, how do you respond to it? Do you repent or not? Right? How do you respond at a behavioral level? What are you doing differently? How many of you know the Bible talks about the fruit of repentance? Repentance has to have fruit. Amen. So we want our lives changed by the gospel. We want our lives transformed by the gospel. Otherwise, the question mark is, have we really fully received the gospel? All right? So are you ready to get into this? Okay, so it's number seven, and it's sincerity and transparency. Sincerity and transparency. Can someone just close the, the, those blinds there so that it's a bit darker for people? We didn't have power earlier on, so we opened up everything so we could get light. Okay. How many of you would describe yourselves as a sincere person? How many of you would say, Paul, I'm sincere? Okay, I'm cool. We need this light here. So the last light, the bottom light, you can just switch it on. We need it for the video. Thank you. Okay. All right. How many of you would describe yourselves as a sincere person? 
All right, let's unpack what sincere comes from. It comes from two Latin words, sin and sere. It literally means without wax. And some of you are familiar with this. In ancient times, when they would go to specific um, places, markets, where they would sell marble stones, you wanted to know, has this stone got a crack in it or not? Amen? Because there were some people who would sell fake stones to you, stones that had cracks in them. And what would happen is they would cover the crack with wax. So you wanted to know, is this stone without wax or not? Everyone following? Is this stone without wax or not? And if it had wax on it, the way you would test that is you would heat up the stone. What happens when you heat up wax? It begins to melt. So when we talk about being sincere, we're saying, are you without wax? In other words, when the heat is on, the heat is on. When the heat is on, what happens to you? Do you change? Do you become different? How many of you know that when a guy and a girl are dating, everything can be fine? The person puts their best foot forward. But then later on you see true colors. You see the true colors coming out. Why? When the heat is on. And some of you are experiencing pressure in your lives. You're experiencing heat and we're seeing the true colors. Now, the person who's sincere is without wax. This is the person who says, this is me. When I'm suffering, this is me. When I'm at church, this is me. Amen. Amen. And so I want to encourage you. Don't be the kind of Christian who's always trying to project an ideal image of themselves. But there's something else going on in the inside. You will not be able to connect with other people relationally if you're a pretender. Oh, remember the song, The Great Pretender? Sorry, songs are just coming back to me now, coming back. I know I'm old school, but just feel me for a while, all right? Romans 12 verse 9 says, love must be sincere. It says, love must be without wax. Love must be sincere. Continue loving even when the heat is on. Someone is hearing me. Continue loving even when the heat is on. Continue loving your wife even when you're under pressure. Continue loving your kids even when you're stressed out and you're thinking, am I going to lose my job? Love must be sincere, not fake. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So this shows me that a lot of times love is not sincere. And when love is not sincere, it's not love. The very nature of loving another human being is that it must be sincere. That's why scripture tells us that love rejoices in the truth. Amen? Amen. Love rejoices in the truth. You cannot separate love from truth. If you truly love someone, you must be able to tell them the truth. There's certain difficult conversations I've had to have with people and I've had to say, but if I care about this person, I will tell them the truth. How many of you know that if you see someone who's got their zip down, their zip, yes, their zip, and the zip is down and um, it's outside in the car park and you don't really know that person and you don't really care about them, you probably won't say anything. But if you see your, be your best friend and their zip is down and they're about to go to work, because of your love, you'll tell them the truth. Are you hearing me? As pastors, because we love you, we will tell you the truth. Our love for each other has to be bigger than our fear of awkwardness. 
And I don't know about you, but I don't believe it's a loving thing to just stand and watch people fall into a pit. Just stand and watch people with their zips down. Because we feel too awkward to tell them. Amen. Amen. So God is taking us to a place in our relationships where there's sincerity and transparency. It's part of being a spiritually mature person. You see, it's so sad that there can be guilt-based acts of goodness. You can do a lot of good things for people, thinking you are loving them, but you're just doing them stemming from guilt. How many of you know that there's no reward for that? I remember in our varsity days back in the 90s, there was a, a friend of ours, and she would always give cards to people. She would always give them little gifts, presents, and people on the surface will just look and they'll be like, wow, she's so nice. She's such a nice person. And I think it was the shrink in me that saw through that. And I was like, and I asked her the one day and I said, when you're always giving people presents and gifts and cards and so on, why do you do that? What motivates that? And she said something interesting. She said, you know what, Paul? I feel like in order to maintain my relationships with people, I have to keep doing them favors. Her self-esteem was low. So she didn't believe that she was accepted for who she was. She felt she had to keep giving people gifts. Some of you are like that. And I want to encourage you because you could be receiving so much blessing from heaven if you were doing what you were doing from a pure heart, if it was sincere love. You see, the problem today is many of us, we think we're loving people, but it's love with a hook. What is love with a hook? It's where I do something for, for you, but I really want something in return. And sometimes that thing we want in return, it's subtle. It's not always, hey, you scratch, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. It's not always like for like. There's some people with family members, they want to provide for everyone. They want to pay everyone's bills and do this and do that simply because they're actually paying for respect. I will keep doing this so I can control our relationship. I will keep doing favors for you so that I'm one up on you all the time. You know the people I'm talking about? They haven't got the humility to receive from you. But they always want to be the main one giving. And they think it's because they're generous, but it's love with a hook. It's not love. Love with a hook is not love. There's something in us as human beings where we know we want to be sincere. Have you noticed that if I ask you, who's your best friend? Who's your bestie? Right? Who's a close friend of yours? The person you will name will always be someone who you feel comfortable with. You'll often say, I like being around this person. And then you'll say, because Paul, I can be myself with her. Paul, I can be myself with him. Those are the people we are drawn to. But when it's people who we feel like I have to keep pretending, I have to keep pretending. I'm not fully myself. I'm anxious when I'm around him. What happens? You will always avoid that which you fear. Simple as that. You will avoid that which you fear. And we say, come, let's go and see so-and-so. You've always got an excuse. Why? Because there's anxiety. So I believe God is taking our relationships to a place where we become more sincere in how we relate to each other, but where we also on the receiving end create an environment where people find it easy to be sincere with us because they know there's no judgment. Amen? Amen. Just because I tell you the truth about your situation or your behavior or how you're treating your spouse, it doesn't mean there's judgment. It doesn't mean that I'm seeing myself as superior. Are you hearing me this morning? 
I believe God is taking us to this place. I remember recently, um, my wife was at a particular soccer match and she told me that she saw someone there, a particular person. Um, I said, did you greet the person? Did you guys talk? How did you feel when you saw that person? It was someone who had done something that was quite bad. Okay, I'll just say that, quite bad to a friend of ours. And I said, so what did you do? And she said, um, you know what? I didn't get to talk to the person, but I'm glad that I didn't because I would have had to pretend. Are you hearing me? There was something in her that didn't want to go, hi, how are you? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, she's feeling a certain way on the inside. All right? There's something about us as human beings where we don't want to be fake. Newsflash. Some of you are fake. Some of you, when you come to church, you want to hear it straight? Some of you are fake. Some of you should be coming up. When we say Harvey is here praying for people, you should be coming up praying. Some, some of you, being prayed for, sorry. Some of you, you come up, we say, are you fine? How are you? I'm fine, pastor. You're actually lying. Rather change the subject if you don't want to lie, but don't lie. Amen? Amen. So don't be fake. If you want to bond with another human being, it's important there's sincerity and transparency. I'm shocked in a lot of marriages today. I minister to couples, lots of couples. I coach them, I counsel them. And I'm shocked by the number of, of times that people lie to their spouses. It keeps, it keeps coming up. I say to people when I'm counseling them, I say, God come and expose hearts, reveal hearts in this place. And I say, make sure you don't lie because I'll see it. And people lie to each other. Then the truth comes out and then you see that people were twisting things and so on. And, and people rationalize the lies. I know I I'm, I'm, I'm didn't tell my wife because I wanted to protect her. I know I didn't tell my wife about this thing because, because um, you know, she might freak out. Transparency. It's better she freaks out and knows the truth than you keep hiding things because you won't have emotional intimacy. Amen. Matthew chapter 15, verse 7 to 9. Jesus says, you hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you. These people honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. These people honor me with their lips. Victory, victory belongs to Jesus. Victory belongs to Jesus. They honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. You know that for our relationship to be strong vertically, it also needs to be strong horizontally. So this same principle, Jesus applies to our everyday relationship. Hypocrisy is not just in how we relate to God, it's also how we relate to each other. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus could have also said, these people sing your praises and they say nice things about you, but in their hearts they're feeling something else. I could say as a pastor, these people come to me and say, Pastor, thank you. Oh, we are so fortunate. We're so blessed to have you as our pastor. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, pastor. But their hearts are in a different place. That's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. 
Are you saying things to God but not meaning it? Then it's worship in vain. Why? Because verse 9 says, they worship me in vain. In other words, their singing is pointless because their heart doesn't match what they're saying. It says, they worship me in vain. Then he goes on to say something interesting. He says, they teach as doctrine the precepts of men. In other words, they're putting more weight to something than is actually due. They're saying, this is a tradition of man, right? But they're teaching it like, this is gospel and everyone has to do it. They're not being sincere. They're deceitful. It's the same as someone who's got an opinion or a suggestion, but making it like a prophetic word. Happens in the church a lot. It's the same. You're putting more weight on something than is due to the thing. You're not being sincere. You're trying to manipulate people into your way of doing things. That's just an opinion. It's just a preference. It's just a suggestion. But you're making it out like this is the word of God. It's the same. You know, sadly today, a lot of people are du duplicitous. What do we mean by duplicitous? It's, it, it, the word duplicitous literally means having two parts or having two elements. How many of you know that there's some people who live a double life? So they act very Christian. Praise God, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. They, they win the Oscars or the Grammys. I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, if you've watched their movie, in fact, the movie that they acted in, you won't even watch it because it's R-rated. But when they're up, I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're living a double life, duplicitous. Or sometimes what it speaks of is where you're saying one thing but meaning another. It comes from a word that speaks of having two elements. Those of you who are lawyers, we've got a few lawyers here. It's a word that is also used when you're talking about in the court of law, when someone commits one act, but in one action that the person did, there are two counts. Does that make sense? So for example, let's say someone just flies over a bridge, right? It's the same act, isn't it? But in the process of flying over the bridge, they were disobeying the traffic laws, right? So that's one thing they did wrong. But then someone else dies in the process. Culpable homicide, I think, or something like that, right? Same act, two counts. So it just speaks of something having two elements. And my question to you is, do you have two elements? Do you have a part of you that's very Christian and then another part of you that's living the opposite life out there? And you're the great pretender when you come to church. And you're the great pretender in your relationships. Ladies and gentlemen, when we want to go to higher dimensions in our relationships, we cannot be duplicitous. We must be sincere and transparent. Are you hearing me this morning? In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, it says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So if we walk in the light, in transparency, in truth, in sincerity, as Jesus is in the light, what's the result? Fellowship with one another. Can you see the link between transparency and fellowship? Can you see that your relationships become stronger very often to the degree to which there's openness and transparency? You know what the sad thing is? 
often we believe the opposite. Often our mindset is, if I just hide all my stuff, if I'm just not honest with these people, if I just pretend, then we will remain in fellowship. It won't be sincere fellowship. It won't be true fellowship. Amen? How many of you have had friendships where the friendship still needs to be tested? What happens after it's tested? What's hap what happens after you go through a difficult patch and you have to have that difficult conversation? Have you noticed you end up closer, don't you? You end up closer because you're no longer pretending. You're not going through your life with this fear of being found out. Why? You've proactively said, guys, these are my weaknesses. Guys, this is where I'm at. Some of the best people to have in a church setting for a pastor is the people who will say, pastor, you know what? I know you want to raise me up to do this and to become this, but here's me. This is what's happened. This has been my history. This is what's happened in my life. And you're open and you're transparent. Amen? I appreciate uh, people like Juan. That's one of the reasons, that, one of the things I like about Juan, because he's very open. When they first started coming to the church, we had a coffee together. And he says, Pastor, I want to talk about our lives. I want to tell you this is where we've come from. This is what we've struggled with. This is what's happened. This is where we're at now. This is what God is doing. It's very easy to deal with people like that because there's openness and transparency. And please, I'm not saying tell every single person around you your deepest, darkest secret. That's not what I'm saying. But make sure you've got people in your lives who actually know what's going on. Amen. I'm just hearing the Lord saying to me, that's one of the reasons why the blessing is being robbed from some of you. It's this very thing. You're not sincere and you're not transparent. The things God is wanting to do, the breakthroughs he's wanting to grant you. But there's a thing where, there's, where you've been duplicitous, where you've been living a double life. Lord says to you, choose which way am I going to live? Choose which way am I going to live? I like it in the New Living Translation. It actually says, this is Romans 12 verse 9, it actually says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. How many of you have got people in your lives where you know you really love them? Do you know that it's tough for us? You can see Eric is checking, okay, my wife-to-be, does she really love me? It's like he lifts his hand up like this and he's like, just checking. How quick did your hand go up? All right. John 1 verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He was praising him. This is one of the guys he ends up choosing to be a disciple. And I believe one of the reasons he chose him was this. He liked that about him. He was like, here's a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Some of you are familiar with the translation that says, with whom there's no guile, right? Now, what does that word actually mean? It speaks of bait. It speaks of bait. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is a person, when he says something, that's what he means. He says what he means, and he means what he says. He's not saying one thing and meaning another thing. He's not saying one thing and hoping that what he's saying has another effect. So every time you're arguing with your spouse, and you say things to your spouse that you don't really mean just to get a reaction out of them. 
That means there's guile in you. Are you hearing me this morning? You know when people will say after a fight with their spouse, no, when I said that I was just exaggerating because, yeah, I thought that would get your attention. I counsel people and that's what they often say. I did this because I thought that would get a reaction from him. But then we hurt each other with our words because there's guile in our words. You're saying something, but you don't really mean it, but you're saying it because you want another reaction. And concerning Nathaniel, Jesus says, wow, this is a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. Isn't that powerful? There's no deceit in him. That word deceit is guile, bait, hook. You're trying to hook in the unsuspecting by what you say. So how do we come to a place where we become more transparent? How do we come to a place where we're more sincere? I'm going to give you a couple of options. But I believe that we have to learn to be assertive. We have to learn to be assertive as people. What is assertiveness? Assertiveness is I can stand up for my rights because I'm okay enough to do so. But in the process, I don't violate your rights. Assertiveness is where I can be direct with you about my needs. But in the process, I'm full of empathy concerning where you're at. Are you hearing me? That's being assertive. The word assert actually comes from an interesting Latin, Latin word and literally means to declare. It's not just negative things, it's also positive things. So if I say to someone, oh, those are lovely shoes you've got there. I'm being assertive. It's where you can speak freely about what you think, speak freely about what you think and you feel comfortable doing so. You speak with no guile. And I think we need more Christians like that. Amen. All right. Assertiveness is our goal. Now, what are the alternatives? Some people become aggressive, don't they? The Bible tells us, speak the truth in love. So we have to speak the truth, but we have to do it in love. When you become aggressive as a person, sometimes you're being truthful and you're being direct, but in the process, you're violating the respect you should have for other people. Amen. You're standing up for your rights, but in the process, you're violating someone else's rights. On the other extreme, you've got the passive person. And this, the passive person is not direct. They don't tell you what they really need. Right? And with the passive person, they're like a doormat. And the mindset of passivity is, you know what? I'm not okay. You guys are all okay. I won't tell you my needs. I'll just be a martyr. And that's not healthy. And often people who are passive, they become resentful later on. So can you see how it works? One extreme, we've got the aggressive person. I'm okay, you're not okay. And it comes out with how they, in how they relate to you. On the other extreme, you've got the passive person. I'm not okay, you guys are all okay. And then you've got the assertive person. I'm okay to stand up for my rights, but you're okay for me to do so respectfully. Amen? Amen. Let me give you some examples of passivity, first of all. A girl is on a first date and the boyfriend says, do you want to go to that Italian restaurant? She knows there's going to be pasta there, spaghetti, etc. And she feels very awkward about it because she knows it's very messy. Right? But she still says, yeah, no, it's fine. I'll go wherever you want to go. She's being passive. 
She's not actually declaring what she wants. Now, here's the thing. It's not to say she must insist on her own way, but she must be comfortable enough from a place of self-worth to say, this is what I would actually like. But hey, I'm flexible because I know the other places are far away, so I don't mind going to the Italian place, but this is my preference. Can you see the balance? A lot of people are not truthful. Nice people, but they're not actually truthful. Right? Let me give you an example. If you're in a restaurant and you say, I would like my meat to be medium. Right? You know when they say medium, rare, what would you like? And you say medium. But then the meat comes and when you cut it, the blood is pouring out. Okay? And then the waiter comes and then says, is everything okay, ma'am? I'm sure you're enjoying the meal, aren't you? Asking you a leading question. And then you're like, yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. That means you're being passive. You're not being sincere and you're not being transparent. I'm trying to show you how Christians sin every day. Because <laughs> what that is called is called lying. Because you then gossip and complain about the restaurant, but the guy had asked you. You're being passive. And often people who are like that, their self-esteem is very low. And they're in a space where they're like, I don't want to bother anyone. Rather say, you know what, I had asked for medium, but blood is pouring out. But you know what, because we don't have that much time, I'll just eat it anyway. Rather say that, but you're still speaking the truth. Does that make sense? Okay. What's an example of aggression in this situation? Aggressive behavior is the person comes and they say, is everything okay, ma'am? And then you say, everything? You guys are completely incompetent. <laughs> you guys, honestly, seriously... You're definitely not going to get a tip. And I'm going to speak to your manager about this. This is completely unacceptable. <laughs> and then you go and you put something on Facebook, put something on... You're not, you're not demonstrating patience. Are you, are you hearing me? And you're talking down at a person and you're labeling them. What does assertiveness look like? Assertiveness is saying, you know what, I had asked for this. It's now come out like this. Can you please go and just cook it? We've got time. Can we please just do it again? Maybe I think it needs another 10 minutes. That's being assertive. And it's important that we are like that. Jesus was like that. Amen. Okay. Sadly, some people become passive aggressive. The passive aggressive person, they start off by not telling you their needs. But three days down the line, they complain and they blow up. I think you know some people like that, okay? There was a guy I was coaching in one of the organizations I deal with, and he said to me, Paul, you know what? There was a meeting I was running, and I was late for that meeting. I walked into the room, and as I walked in, there was a whiteboard. And you know the whiteboard has got those metal parts? And he says, it ended up tearing my shirt, and I got cut. But because I was already late, he was only about five minutes late, says, I went, and I said, so what did you do? Did you explain to the people? He says, no, I kind of felt like we just need to carry on with the meeting. So I started unpacking it, because he says, I felt I needed to go to the bathroom and clean myself up, but because I was late, I just kept quiet. And I started helping him with his self-esteem, and I started saying, can you see what's happening? You don't feel significant enough as a person. You kind of feel like my pain and what I've been through doesn't matter. The meeting must go on. I must suffer and punish myself for being late for this meeting that I'm running. I don't matter. That's a self-esteem issue. And I said to him, you know what? If I had been in that meeting, I, wouldn't, I would have wanted to hear your pain. 
Some of you here have lost your voices. You don't feel significant. Jesus says you're the apple of his eye. Well, God says that. You're the apple of my eye. You're my signet ring. You're important. You can do the same works that I've done and you can do even greater. That's how he views you. But because of the pain you've been through in your life, you're now a doormat who's lost their voice. If we're to go to higher dimensions in our relationships, we need to be assertive. Amen. So when you're assertive, you're appropriately honest, you're direct, you're expressive, you're self-confident, but at the same time, you're full of empathy. If my wife asks me and says, my love, can I make you some coffee? Do you know what assertiveness is? If she says, my love, would you like some coffee? I don't say, no, it's okay, I don't want any, because I'm lying. I will say, you know what, my love, I would really love a cup of coffee, but to be honest with you, I think you've been on your feet for very long this afternoon. So I'll have whenever you make for yourself later on. Are you hearing me? I am being honest about my needs, but I'm demonstrating empathy. My wife might come to me and she might say, my love, uh, there's this payment that needs to be made. I don't know if the guys emailed you, but it needs to be made. But I know that you're very tired and so on. Uh, but I uh, just wanted to give you uh, the heads up if you can make it at some point. Can you see what's happening? She's expressing the need, but she's full of empathy. That was number seven. Sincerity and transparency. Number eight. Difficult conversations. This is the other one I want to give you. Difficult conversations. There was a group of people struggling in their marriages, lots of people. 50% of them ended up getting a divorce. The other 50%, the marriage survived. When they did this study, guess what they found? They found that the 50% that survived, guess what the common denominator was? They were able to have the difficult conversation. They were able to have the difficult conversation. I believe that being able to fight properly is one of the key things that sustains relationships. Sometimes I see people getting divorced and I look at the situation and I think, I've seen worse, but the people are still together. You know what you realize? When you counsel lots of couples, you start seeing a pattern. There are many couples today destroying each other because they don't know how to fight properly. They don't know how to have the difficult conversation. They literally want to murder each other. Literally. They want to murder each other. They don't know how to fight properly. This one is triggering this one, which is triggering this one, who's triggering the other one. What I've also realized is that a lot of people remain stuck in the same job for life because they cannot have a difficult conversation. I've realized and I've learned that in order for us to be successful in this life, we need to have the difficult conversation. There are men today who want to start their own businesses but because they can't speak to their wives and say, you know what, honey, we're going to have to cut down on a number of things for about two years while we set up this business. So this is going to be our lifestyle. Because they can't have that conversation, they never start their business. There are people today who are in a relationship with someone who's not saved 
and they know they should get out of the relationship, but they remain in it. I'm talking about girlfriend, boyfriend situations. They remain in it because they struggle with the difficult conversation. You see them talking and they'll say, but pastor, I feel like if I leave this person, who will be there for him? I'm afraid that I might hurt this individual. I'm afraid that there'll be no one to lead them to Christ. So it becomes missionary dating. <laughs> and the deeper issue is this individual feels they're the savior of the world and they now need to rescue this person instead of having the difficult conversation with the risk of being misunderstood. Amen? Amen. You know what? I've seen heads of organizations in situations where they would rather redeploy someone then actually confront the individual and say, you're messing up. We struggle with you. We think you're a bully. They'll just redeploy the person. People we admire, great corporate leaders, struggling to have a difficult conversation. You see it in meetings, day in, day out, where there's always that person who's a rambler who dominates the meeting. And your subordinates are looking to you to basically silence the person and to say, noted, let's move on. But you can't do it. You can't confront someone. So as a Christian, you're saying you want to take over the world. Victory belongs to Jesus. But you can't redirect a conversation in a meeting. That's a big joke. It honestly is. Where's the boldness? Are you hearing me this morning? Amen. All right. So let me ask a question then. What makes conversations difficult? You see, when you know how the behavior was learned, it's easy to unlearn it. I'm going to be very practical. Number one, conversations become difficult because of the nature of the relationship. So you'll have someone in the workplace saying, Paul, you know what? I'm Zulu and uh, this guy who reports to me, I'm a Zulu female. This guy who reports to me is the same age as my dad. And it's very difficult for me to actually uh, send him for performance management. Paul, it's very difficult for me to actually correct him when he messes up because he's not that competent. The nature of the relationship, where you can't take off the cultural cap and put on a corporate cap. It's a difficult conversation. But you know that the Bible has an answer for all of these things? What does the Bible say? How do we deal with older people? 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers. So the Bible already shows us that when you're addressing something with an older person, you should address it, number one, but there's a way in which you do it because you're respecting his age or her age. Are you hearing me? If I've got an issue with Mr. Manyuma, who's a few years older than me, right? There's a way I will speak to him, but I will still speak to him. There's a way I'll speak to him about the issue, but it might not be the same way I would speak to Sipo or Justin. Are you hearing me? but you still address it regardless of the age. Some people are very stuck here. It's like, ah, Paul, I can't do it culturally, in my culture. <laughs> my culture which I worship and bow down to, not the word of God. Do not rebuke an older man harshly. Okay, so you can rebuke an older man gently. <laughs> <laughs> That's my reading of this. Do not rebuke an older man harshly but exhort him as if he were your father. Some translations say appeal to him as you would your father. If you want to enlarge your influence, you have to be able to lead people 
who are older than you. You have to be able to lead people from a different ethnicity. You have to be able to lead people from a different gender, from the other gender. There are only two genders, right? From the other gender. Otherwise, you limit yourself. You say, ah, no, I'm a good leader, I'm a good leader, but you're only good with the same sex. Or you're only good with your generation. You know what's been found? The type of leader, if you look at the latest leadership research, the type of leader that's very effective today is the leader who's learned to lead beyond the old boys club. The leader who can lead people who are not like themselves. Are you hearing me this morning? The second reason why we find some conversations difficult, especially it's, it's when they're already doing you a favor. Have you noticed that? It's when they're already doing you a favor. So I say to you, hey, so that conference we're going to in Nelspreet, what time are you leaving? Ah, no, I'm Paul, I'm leaving early. And then you say to me, Paul, I'll actually give you a lift. And I say, can I contribute in terms of fuel? Ah, no, Paul, I'm going anyway. So you don't have to contribute. And I say, okay, can you come and fetch me at 6 a.m.? You know I don't like being late for things. Then you pitch up at 20 past 6. It becomes a difficult conversation because you're already doing me a favor. Amen? We have to come to a place where we are comfortable correcting people who are already doing us favors. It's that type of assertiveness. Amen? All right? For some of you, it's awkward for you. Some of you women in this place, your boss has just given you a bonus end of last year. Your boss is always singing your praises in front of the CEO. But your, that same boss is phoning you after hours and trying to talk to you about things that are not work-related. It's a difficult conversation. Let's be honest. It's a difficult conversation because you want to say, please, I would prefer it if we address this while we're at work. It's happy hour now with my kids. Or I'm going to Zumba. Or I'm going to boot camp. I'm not available right now. Or I'm having my hair done, right? I'm having a hair piece put on. Whatever you're doing, you tell the person, it doesn't matter whether they gave you a bonus last year or they've just promoted you or they're singing your praises to the CEO. Are you hearing me? Because if you can't be assertive in that situation, it means that you're being controlled. And here's how control works. Control is not about the person controlling you. Often we point fingers and say, my boss, he's always phoning me after hours. You know what I would like to know? You know how control works? It's like a remote control car. If I take one of my kids' remote controls and then I try and move their car, the car will move, won't it? If I take that same remote and I try and take my wife's shoe off, will it come off? But this is a remote control, guys. It controls things. Why doesn't a shoe come off? It doesn't come off because it's got no receiver. So when you're being controlled by people, my question to you is, what's the receiver in you? That is causing them to control you. That's the deeper issue. And I'll tell you what that receiver often is. You see that person as your source and not God. You see that person in an exaggerated way. That if I have a fallout with this individual, he'll hate me. And that's it in my career. When you come to a place where you see God as your source and God as your sustainer, you're uncontrollable in the sense of people can't control you. You are free. Paul the Apostle says, I'm free of all men. I love that scripture. I'm free of all men. I was about to have a conversation with someone, one of my clients, one of the leaders in a particular organization I, I do some things for. And 
I didn't end up seeing the person, but I'd already rehearsed what I was going to say to them. And I was so free in what I was going to say to them because I don't see them as my source. Amen? Amen. But you would appeal to them as you should someone who's your boss. You wouldn't just say, dude, what's your story? Stop calling me. Do you not know I have another life? No, don't speak like that because that's aggression. It's not assertiveness. Amen? Okay. Conversations also become difficult when it affects your self-concept. There was a particular colleague of mine and she said, Paul, you know what? I'm going to have to have a difficult conversation with a friend of mine because whenever we go out, we take it in turns. I sometimes pay, then she sometimes pay, pays. But it's going to be a difficult conversation because my self-concept is I see myself as a generous person. Now I'm going to have to say to this person, you know what? The last three times we've been out together, I've had to pay. Let's talk about it. Can you see the risk there? The risk is that this friend will turn around and say, you mean you actually count? So each time you've been doing that, you count. That's the risk. But this person had to come to a place in their lives where they say, I can still be a generous person, but a generous person with boundaries. Some of you are bound because you don't want to be misunderstood by family members. Some of you are bound because your self-concept is, I'm the hero who saves the day. And very often it's pride. I will rescue everyone around me. There's a particular guy who was managing a particular department, strong personality, but he came to me and he says, Paul, I need your help. So-and-so apparently has been abusing sick leave. Now, here's the interesting thing. This guy didn't like the whole clock-watching thing and so on. He's strong on work-rest balance. And he had positioned himself in how he sees himself as, this is the kind of manager I am. I'm very flexible. So can you see why it was going to be a difficult conversation? Because I said, so just have the conversation with the individual. They shouldn't be abusing sick leave. And guess what he said to me? He says, yeah, Paul, it's just a bit tricky. I don't want this person to think I'm now one of those people who's trying to make, micromanage them. But he had to come to a place where he realized that, you know what? You can still be flexible about time whilst at the same time firm about the boundaries. Amen. Some of you have to learn that. Sometimes conversations are difficult when the stakes are high. Have you noticed that at, in, at work you can rebuke someone and it's fine, but when it involves their bonus, it's a bit tricky, isn't it? The stakes are high. Sometimes conversations become difficult when it affects someone's status. If you have to put someone on early retirement, and then all of a sudden this person feels like, but my identity and my status is in this job, and now you're taking all of that away from me. Sometimes you have to have that conversation. Sometimes it's difficult to have a conversation with someone when they're too sensitive. So you hear people saying, ah, with other people, Paul, I can discuss that. But with this person, she's too sensitive. And we avoid that conversation. And then I ask more than two questions deep and I say, what were you running away from in that situation? And then they say, I didn't want to hurt them. Then I say, is your deepest fear hurting them? And they say, well, I don't want them to think I'm an ugly monster who's horrible. Then I say, well, it's actually now more about you than that person. Your deep fear isn't hurting that person. Your deep fear is being misunderstood by that person. Ultimately, your fear is being rejected by that person. It's actually a rejection issue on your part. It's not to do with them. Are you feeling me? 
right? And we see that happening. Sometimes certain conversations are difficult when you don't know what to expect. Where there's that situation of, I don't know how this person is going to react. And sometimes the conversation is difficult when you're dealing with a difficult person. And that difficult person can be someone who's a bully. It can be someone who's a sniper. You know those people where you're in a meeting and they wait only until you're in a public setting to embarrass you. And then they bring up a negative thing. And you're like, why couldn't we do this one-on-one? -on -one? I'm going to do a whole message on how to deal with difficult people. Because when you're leading people, you don't want to be good just with the easy people. You want to be good with the difficult people. How do you deal with the gossip? How do you deal with the drama queen? We have to master it as Christians. Jesus was very good at dealing with difficult people. Look how direct Jesus was. In Luke chapter 17, verse 3, he says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So what do you do if your brother sins? It says rebuke him. It doesn't say ignore it. It doesn't say pretend it didn't happen. You know what to rebuke is? It's to chide. It's to admonish. It's to warn. It's to correct. It's to redirect. So when you're rebuking someone, you're basically saying, this is the change of direction that you need. You know what to admonish is? When you're admonishing someone, you're basically saying, here's the word of God, the standard of the word, but here's what you've done. Let's redirect what you've done. Let's redirect it so it's aligned to the word. Amen? And that's what the Bible instructs us to do. Think of Jesus. Jesus had potentially difficult conversations. Just think about it. But I don't think they were that difficult for Jesus because he was so straightened to the Father God and he wasn't bent toward man. Think about it. For example, in Matthew 16, verse 23, it says, Jesus turned and said to Peter, remember Peter was saying, hey, this cross thing, Lord Jesus, uh-uh, I don't think you should do it. It says, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He said that. That's potentially difficult. Because Jesus is thinking to himself, I want Peter to end up leading the church afterwards. He's going to be the main senior apostle, right? If I just do this, maybe Peter will be, will feel insulted. If you're grooming someone to take over from you, you usually want to massage the situation, don't you? You don't want things to change. Peter could have turned around and said, yo, how could you have said that to me? Because this is something that could be misunderstood. We know he was addressing the devil, but the Bible says he said to Peter. You know what that tells me? It's not like Peter spoke to him and then Jesus turned around and says, I rebuke you, Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. No, he was speaking to Peter. And he didn't qualify this. He didn't pause and say, uh, Peter, you know what, just so you know, I'm actually going to be rebuking the spirit that I think is operating through you. Please just understand. He spoke to Peter. Let me ask you a question. How many people do you need to be addressing because of the spirit behind what they're doing? How many people who are usually very nice people? Remember Peter straight after this, shortly after this, he's the one who then says, hey, you know what? Jesus, he had a revelation of Jesus, right? You are the Christ. That's how I see you. 
wonderful Holy Spirit revelation he had. But before that, he was basically discouraging Jesus from the cross. Are there people who are discouraging you from your God-given purpose? And maybe you should actually also be doing what Jesus did. That's a difficult conversation. I rebuke you, devil. <laughs> How are you going to massage that? But Jesus did. Okay? And I'm sure they sorted it out afterwards with Peter. Okay? Because <laughs> we don't hear anything about Peter complaining about this. The thing was just rebuked. <laughs> All right? Matthew 16, verse 23. Look what Jesus did. It says, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get, get, get thee behind me, Satan. Okay? You are a stumbling block to me, right? At what point did Peter feel like he's addressing a spirit? And at what point did you feel like he's actually also addressing me? Because to have a spirit functioning through you, you must have given it a legal right. So there was something in Peter's flesh that was like, ah, uh -uh, let's stop this from happening. So I believe that Jesus was rebuking the devil, but at the same time, he was addressing Peter because Peter had allowed himself to be used by the enemy. Have you got people around you who are allowing themselves to be used by the enemy and you address things with them accordingly? Just think about it. Okay? So Jesus was very candid. He was very candid. In Ephesians 4 verse 15 it says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. What are we called to do as believers? Speak the truth. In love. Look at this in Acts chapter 4, verse 15 to 20. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. Right? Verse 18. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all. You know, this is happening very subtly today, where we are being commanded. People are telling us not to preach the gospel. We go into the workplace, we go into various places, and people are like, there's an unsaid thing, don't speak Christian stuff. But I have a bit of a problem with that. Because nothing out there is value neutral. So when people talk about, oh, the universe, and the universe helped me do this. Oh, Paul, you see, just throw it up, and it just comes back. You see what the universe has done, giving glory to the universe and not to Jesus. When they do that, that's actually a religion. That's actually a worldview. That's actually a mindset that's allowed. Amen? But then as Christians, when we then say something from a biblical Christian worldview, it's like, you're preaching to us. Stop preaching, Yamoda. I still remember when I was at high school, I was very radical and I was challenging certain teachers and so on, saying, guys, you must believe. Okay? And one teacher, Mr. Songore, I remember Mr. Songore, and he said, stop preaching, Yamoda. Stop preaching. I will keep preaching. Amen? Because there was another teacher, Mr. Gurira, even though we were at a Christian school, traditionally Christian school, and when he was teaching us in Form 2, that's when we were about 14 years of age, okay, grade, what, 8, 9, somewhere there. And, and Mr. Gurira, our geography teacher, was saying to the other kids, come on, there's no God. Do you believe in God? There's no God. <laughs> Mr. Gurira was allowed to say that, well, why can't I preach about Jesus? 
Nothing's going to stop me. Amen. <laughs> There's no God. <laughs> Mr. Gurira. <laughs> he didn't used to say the plateau. He used to say the plateaux when he was teaching us geography. Anyway. <laughs> no, but I mean, he's a, he was a nice guy, but yeah. There's no God. Is there God? There's no God. Saying that to 14-year-olds. And now you say to me, Paul, you can't preach about Jesus. I'll preach about Jesus. Amen. <laughs> right? And then it goes on to say something interesting. Verse 18 says, And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. So it's very respectful. Then verse 20. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Have you lost your voice? Is the enemy trying to silence you? I'm not talking about being foolish. I'm talking about being as wise as a serpent in how you get the message across. Is the enemy trying to silence you? I love how Jesus said in John 5 verse 41, I do not accept glory from human beings. I love it. In the NIV, I do not accept glory from human beings. You know what's controlling some of you, that remote control? You thrive on people's approval. You thrive on receiving glory and praise from man. When you free yourself from that, you're free as a person. God is freeing us this morning. Amen. You know, in the NLT it says, your approval means nothing to me. Your approval means nothing to me. For many, it's the other way around. For many, it's your approval means the world to me. Yeah. We need to call things what they are instead of sugarcoating them. Drunkenness is drunkenness. Not, oh yeah, I think she just drinks too much. Oh, my dad used to just drink too much. No, it's drunkenness and it's a sin. It's not a disease, it's a sin. Okay? Homosexuality is homosexuality. Don't say, oh, that person is gay. And I'll teach on that sometime. Because the term gay is something that people who practiced homosexuality, they actually intentionally wanted to be called gay. So that it reinforces in people's minds that this is something you are born with. And so it, there are rights around it. But as, but as Christians, we call it what the Bible says. Just in the same way as we'll love the drunkard, we will love the person who's corrupt out there. We'll love someone who practices homosexuality, but that's what the Bible calls it. Because the moment the person says, I'm a gay person, there's almost a thing of like, so don't judge me because this is who I am. It's not who you are, it's what you're doing. Are you hearing me? And I think we, we will do a whole teaching on this because there's confusion even in the body of Christ about these things. Okay? Matthew chapter 23, verse 32. Look how Jesus calls out wickedness. He says, fill up then the measure of your father's sins. You snakes. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You snakes. You brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Now today there are people who are preaching that there's no hell. And Jesus has just said, how are you guys going to escape the sentence of hell? Do you know that in scripture, the person who speaks about hell the most is Jesus? And I believe that because he knew what it was like there, he was able to speak on it and warn people. 
Jesus saw their wickedness and he called it out. Matthew 5, verse 23 to 25. It says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Verse 25, we often skip this. Reconcile quickly with your adversary while you're still on the way to court. You know what a difficult conversation sometimes is like? It's where you have to go and confess something. It makes it difficult, isn't it? It's where you have to go and admit guilt and say, I messed up here. But the Bible here is saying, instead of trying to be spiritual, stop all your religious stuff because part of being spiritual is going and sorting out that thing. It says, do it quickly. The key about difficult conversations is not so much are we having the difficult conversation, it's how quickly do we get to a place where we have the difficult conversation. Amen? How quickly do we get to the place where we have the difficult conversation? So, what's the pattern of having a difficult conversation? The first thing you do is you say to someone, let me hear your story. Let me hear your story. Help me to understand. So you ask for their story first. Do you know that in any conversation, the person who's most powerful is the second person to speak, not the first person. Because if you allow the other person to speak, you're getting fodder, aren't you? Concerning the situation. And then when you speak, you've heard their story. So hear their story. The second stage is, let me tell you my story. And when you tell them your story, don't use accusation. Rather tell them your story by talking about how you're feeling. I felt this. I need this from you. I experienced this. So what's stage one? Let me hear your story. Help me to understand what the world looks like from your mountaintop. Phase two, here's my story. I need this. I experienced that. I felt this. And then together, the third stage is, let's come up with a solution because we value this relationship. Amen. I want to encourage you as you go from here, be willing to, to face stuff in your life. There's facing self. Hey, I'm actually disorganized. Hey, I'm actually lazy. Whatever thing you have to do facing yourself. There's facing others. This is where you'd have that difficult conversation with that friend. And then there's facing your work or your ministry. It's where you say, guys, I don't think I'm cut out for this. Guys, I'm struggling here. God wants us to be transparent and sincere. And God wants us to engage in difficult conversations. Let's pray.